Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. This is why I do the work I do. The emotion is passion. And I have to use that passion to support other victims. I know Christmas and New Year have been and gone. And we are on our way into 2024. And already my husband and I have been evacuated yet again from our house. Honestly, you couldn't make this sort of stuff up. I counted the other day we've moved six times now in 14 months. Well, that's pretty unbelievable when you think about it. But two days away and we've made our way through the mud and the mozzies and we're back home again. And hopefully this time for good. Um, my heart goes out to my friends in and around uh, Rochester. Uh, I've got to say we've all had a very anxious, nervous start to 2024. Over my break... I've been sourcing heaps of guests for you uh, for 2024 and today I start with one, a guest who isn't afraid to address some issues which aren't easy to address and will no doubt provide some uncomfortable moments for many of us, me included, but they're discussions we need to have. Just like domestic and family violence wasn't something discussed so openly years ago, but because of some difficult conversations, we're now so much more educated and aware of the problems that it exposes. So a heads up, we're going to be discussing amongst other things today, pornography on the net, the importation of sex dolls, child abuse and drafting strangulation legislation. So today's guest is proof you don't need a university degree to be successful in life. And to those students who were so bitterly disappointed in their recent exam results and feel your dreams have been shattered, 
do not be dismayed. I left school at 15. I've always been employed and my guest today became a member of parliament with no uni degree, but a will and determination which no doubt, like me, you will only and can only admire. It just might be that you need to take a a different path. But trust me, when I say it isn't the end of the world, although I'm sure uh, it can feel like that right at the moment, Tanya Maxwell was sexually abused as a child, which led to difficulties as a teenager, battling a gamut of emotions, including depression, suicidal ideations and anxiety. But as you'll hear today, her philosophy has been since then to learn something from every experience, both the good and bad. Tanya found a purpose in her life to become a victim advocate but to also understand offending more with a view to reducing it or even better, to ultimately prevent it. But to prevent or reduce it, we need to understand it. Tanya's passion in this area resulted in her becoming a member of Victoria's Legislative Council and representative of Darren Hinch's Justice Party's Northern Victoria electorate. But today isn't about politics. It is about justice. Tanya lost her seat in last year's election, but not her passion for supporting our most vulnerable, assisting victims of crime, increasing safety in our community and improving the justice system as a whole. There is so much more to Tanya Maxwell. And uh, welcome to Narelle Fraser Interviews, Tanya. Thank you, Narelle, for that lovely introduction. And can I just say to you and the people of Rochester, you've certainly been in my thoughts as no doubt in everybody's thoughts. I can't believe how many times you have had to move. Uh, and let's hope that this will be the last time and that your your home and many others uh Remain safe and undamaged. I know it's been a, uh, a significant impact on uh, the community's uh, lives and, uh, look, I just hope that people can have the resilience to stay and remain and get on top of this terrible situation. Yeah, thank you, Tanya. Um, you know, it's funny you say that. I heard you hear a lot of stories um, from people you start to get a bit, a bit of survivor guilt that we've been able to get back into our house and others haven't because I've heard stories of people that works haven't even started from the 2022 flood. But yesterday I heard a story about an 86-year-old lady who um, hasn't had any work started on her house that was um, damaged in 2022 and she refuses to leave her house. She doesn't want to. Um and she's been impact, impacted again for this recent flood in the last week. Like, you talk about resilience. How do you have resilience at, at 86? Like, oh, I, I just can't imagine how she must feel, but also the people around her, her families and her friends. You must feel so helpless. Absolutely. And this is often where we see uh, people people's voices aren't heard, Narelle. It's, it's mm-hmm. something particularly that we see in children and the elderly. Uh, their voices are not loud enough and strong enough uh, to demand access mm. to human rights. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, you sometimes think, what can I do? And I'm sure there's something I can do, but 
I feel like banging on somebody's door to say, do something for this lady. Like I would rather put my um, uh, relocation on hold and help this, and I'm sure most people would help this little old lady. You know, it just seems so wrong. Look, we could talk about this forever, Tanya. All I'm thinking about talking about, dreaming about at the moment is floods. So let us move on. <laughs> but 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 we do not forget, and I understand, and thank you for, you know, your thoughts about the people um, impacted. So moving on, uh, Daniel Morecambe's abduction and death in Queensland in uh, late 2003 that became a catalyst for many things in your life, didn't it? Can you tell us what it was about Daniel Morecambe that struck um, such a chord with you? Absolutely, Narelle, and thanks for asking that question because it's something that a lot of people have asked me. Just before I get to that, can I can I just do a quick introduction to say that 2024 is the year where I certainly intend to speak much more about the impact of sexual abuse. My speaking tours that I've launched, Tanya Maxwell Surviving Trauma, they are raw and real conversations about a topic that most people don't want to discuss, as you said in the introduction. However, it is my belief that not having open and honest discussions allows perpetrators to continue to offend. They thrive on that anonymity, particularly against children. And in order to understand trauma, we must understand the impact and the ongoing effects that it has on those who experienced it. Uh, I could speak for hours on this topic, but I'll refrain and I'll get back to the question that you asked. But that links in with the question around Daniel Morecambe. So his abduction and death in Queensland in 2003, it just, it became a catalyst for many things in my life. Uh, I can't tell you what it is about Daniel that struck that chord, but I know that I was living in Queensland. Uh, he was a 13-year-old little boy living on the Sunshine Coast and he wasn't found until 2011. And in those years, I was a mother of two children and I just could not imagine how parents drag themselves out of bed every day, not only to search for their missing child, but to then begin to be the public face of Daniel and to advocate for his return. So I felt a really strong connection with the family. And as I said, I don't know why, but I know that the admiration for Bruce and Denise, it, it continues to this day. It has never faned. They're incredible people who I just love and admire. And see, it still brings out this incredible uh, emotion within me. Um, they're unexpected emotions. We've, spo we've, spoken, we've spoken about this, haven't we, Tanya, yes. that uh, for whatever reason we can't put a finger on why, but it brings, like you've um told this story very, very often, but you still get a lump in your throat and you become emotional. Um, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of space to get yourself yeah, together. No, no, <laughs> How am I doing? Yes, no, look, I, I'm fine now, but every time I talk about Daniel, it raises this. But what it does is, you know, I could yeah, I could yeah. fall in a heap and, and allow that emotion to overcome me. But what I do what I do when I'm talking about Daniel, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is why I do the work I do. Mm. 
The emotion is passion and I have to use that passion to support other victims. Mm. I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that uh, you've been a victim yourself, which we'll get to at some point, but I think it's the empathy that you feel you know how being the victim of a crime, whether you are the primary victim or let's call it the secondary victim like um, Daniel's parents, uh, it affects you for the rest of your life. And But you also become very empathetic and understanding of how people feel, how crime affects people. And, like, isn't, this, isn't it amazing that, what did we say, 2003, and you can still uh, become, so, well, not you can, you do still become so emotional in 2022. Yeah. And we can't work out what it is, can we? Like, what is it? Well, we're 2024 now and it still has the same impact as what it did when that news first came out. It's raw and it's real uh, and all I can do is utilise it to uh, have a positive impact on my advocacy role for other victims. You've formed a very special relationship with um, Daniel's parents, Bruce and Denise, haven't you? You've you've struck up a, a really lovely friendship. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, I'd love to. I um I did a lot of work with the government when I was a member of Parliament, but prior to that, um, I have attended the Daniel Morecambe Ball every year that I can. We all, I always get invited to the VI. Which still astonishes me, but um, it's just that love and admiration, and I think that sincere and genuine compassion uh, that I have for them and the work that they do. That is that is so instrumental in making change. You know, they put their money where their mouth is, and I've seen the house that was built. For Daniel, uh, the spaces that they've created for children who have been victims of crime and sexual abuse, etc., to go in there and have psychological appointments. This family, this couple, and, and the entire family are just the most spectacular and incredible human beings. Mm. There, you can't help but love them. I believe. Oh, that's lovely. And and Tanya, I don't know if you feel comfortable or not uh, just telling us the, my, answering my next question, but who was responsible for um, Daniel's uh, abduction and uh, murder? I don't often use his name and, in fact, it's been... We don't, we don't have to use his name, but somebody was... Absolutely. He was... Uh, it took years to discover Daniel's body. He was uh, kidnapped and murdered um, and it took many, many years uh, for him to almost be tricked into a confession. Uh, thank heavens he was caught. You know, there was many years that uh, people considered that, you know, we would never find out what happened to Daniel. So I, th I think that, mm. uh, you know, there is one blessing out of this that the family were able to actually lay Daniel's body to rest and for that disgusting human being who the one thing that really sticks with me Narelle is that he should never have been out of prison he was such a recidivist offender and he had offended uh, against other young boys 
and how he was not incarcerated uh, for those crimes for a much longer period of time is just unfathomable. I must, uh, I do apologise, but I must sort of pick you up there. You said um, that it's just the police in me never goes away, but you said then that he was uh, tricked into uh, confessing. They were um, legitimate legal and very legal practices that that he was, uh, that he did confess in the end, but yeah, I just feel a bit funny when yeah, you say tricked no. because, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, sorry. And, and that, I but. can understand that. I guess my perspective yeah. comes from he thought the people he was meeting with mm. Mm. were people who were going to keep his secret, who were going to, you know, they were giving him mm. jobs. So I don't mean yeah. that in any disrespect to police and, as you know, I am no, married I to a police officer, <laughs> and 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 uh, rightly so. You corrected me on that, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> um, but it, but it was, I feel, it was brilliant police work because, as you said, um, but it, it's a process that we started using back in. Oh, God, I can't have early 90s, I think. And I think at the time it was called the Canadian, it was something to do with Canada. And it was a process that they were using over in Canada that had elicited a lot of confessions. And uh, we tried to, I remember we uh, we did it on a number of investigations and it worked and we didn't want the media to find out because then people might um, be alerted to uh, this process. But uh, I think if it worked once and it worked with Daniel Morcombe, that's, you know, I don't care if it never worked again. <laughs> you know, it worked. So Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it was actually known as the Canadian technique. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were petrified that the uh, petrified is the wrong word, but concerned that the media would um, find out about it. But anyway, now it's um, it's very out in the open, and um, but it's a, a brilliant technique. Ooh, yes. and uh, I take my hat off to uh, to those that um, you know that still works. Um, you've got a, a great deal of drive and determination to reduce offending in our community, but you've also got some ideas on where we start and I think your ideas on where we start are are pretty amazing. Um, So can you take us through some of those ideas on where you think we need to start, when to start, how to start it? Absolutely and uh, it really is a great question and it it has a plethora of complexities. This isn't a cut and dried process, it's not a simple process Uh, and, you know, I, I will Uh, address it under different cohorts. But can I just quickly take you back to how I became interested and I would say Mm. almost obsessed with making these changes to our justice system in Victoria. So in 2016, as a community, we experienced the impact of having two people murdered in our town of Wangaratta in Victoria. One was an innocent little girl who was murdered by a person who'd not long been released from prison. His name was Bo Madigan. And the other was a mother of two who lived next door to a sex offender, Michael Cardamone. Now, he had not long been released from prison either, and he was initially incarcerated for raping a young girl. 
So when these crimes happened, something touched me that said I, I, I cannot stand by and see these shocking injustices in our community. And I knew for me personally I had to take a stand and affect change so that our justice system could never allow this to happen again. And if I couldn't prevent it from happening, I knew I had to do all that I could to research, look at offending, look at the impact of trauma, etc., so that I could achieve positive outcomes. So after those murders, I co-founded the Enough is Enough campaign. And I spent, I was working as a youth worker at the time, and I spent every waking hour researching legislation, scheduling meetings with ministers and the opposition. I became a member of the Victims Reference Group, which the opposition, who was then the Liberal Party, had started. And this was a group of victims of crime who voiced their concerns and raised from their experience the systemic gaps in the justice system. So I wasn't having to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I met Katerina Politi, whose son, David Kassai, was killed uh, where the one-punch laws initially came from. Nolene Nolan, Noel Dixon, and so many other victims of crime. So that's just a little preempt of or preamble of how this sort of started. But back to your question about reducing offending and in fact preventing it. I think given my previous experience of studying mental health, my own personal journey of depression and anxiety, and being a youth worker. I think I came to, to know and really understand the impact of trauma and ways in which it can impact people's lives. I saw firsthand how it impacted young people who I was working with. And the majority of those vulnerable people had experienced trauma. And can I just say here that Trauma can be perceived in a plethora of ways and, and please I ask everyone to remember that perception is reality. So when I talk about trauma, trauma could be somebody breaking their arm. Trauma could be a marriage breakup, a separation, a divorce. Trauma can be what you're experiencing, Narelle, of, you know, the, the floods yeah. and the impact on communities. So just encourage people to bear that in mind. Perception is reality. But I'd like to talk specifically about one cohort just at the moment, which is in relation to children. Trauma for children we know can lead to isolation, serious mental health issues, and for others it might be offending, which can lead to incarceration. And for some, it might be intervention with what was DHHS, which is now DFFH, uh, which can result in disengagement, isolation, and sometimes rebellion. Now, as a youth worker, I worked with that cohort of people and I saw not only their behaviours, but I learned to understand how, in, how trauma had impacted their lives. We also know that there's many different timeframes where intervention is crucial. And if we talk about these different timeframes, we can establish and acknowledge different stages of intervention. So let's start with offending. There's numerous ways we can reduce offending. First and foremost, 
I believe we must secure adequate investment from government to ensure any programs, education and resources are made available and that they are sustainable and we have to measure outcomes. What we see time and time again is funding is provided, but the outcomes aren't measured. It becomes all about KPIs. It becomes about put through instead of input and outcomes. Mm. I know that throughout my four years in Parliament, I was a strong advocate for early intervention and primary prevention for those very reasons. And for children, strengthening the responsiveness of the state's child protection system to keep more children safe and to put them back on the right path in life. It's crucial, but it also means working proactively rather than reactively to the needs of these vulnerable families and their children. The need for support should be identified long before contact with child services. I hope this is making sense. I hope that it's um, I'm identifying ways in which we can utilise early intervention ultimately mm. to create prevention. I know that barriers to families being supported are often due to unrealistic timeframes and lack of funding. I've worked with families who don't trust the system and will often refuse support until it's mandated that they engage with family services. This isn't conducive to timely and positive outcomes because people feel threatened. And once they're mandated, that's when DFFH or Department of Family and Fairness become involved and people are frightened then and very nervous that their children are going to be removed. We need to be engaged. I was going to, sorry, can I, can I just interrupt there, Tender? Are you saying that they, are you saying that they, the families don't want intervention or they refuse intervention? And one, and I can understand this. And one of the concerns is that their children will be taken off them. So they don't seek the help because uh, of that um, possibility, which would just ruin just about anyone. Absolutely. I've seen it happen. Mm. I've worked with mm. families who, uh, you know, child protection have almost had to knock down the, down the door and that threat mm. is real. Mm. That threat for mm. them that they feel at that time, they don't have the skills and the tools to prevent child protection from coming into that space. And we often see that services that are starting to work with those families Child protection override those family services' responsibilities. So we need to ensure that that early intervention funding is there to support those families, provide them the skills that they require so that we don't need child protection. Ultimately, there are absolutely times when child protection must come in and those children must be removed if those children are being abused, treated uh, unfairly, you know, a plethora of reasons. But I'm, what I'm saying is we need to have that early intervention prior to that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And when, when you talk about early intervention, I, uh, I remember a conversation you and I had when 
I said, like, are you talking about like kinder or uh, like, you know, very young, like say, I don't know, two or three? And you really surprised me with how early (laughs) you were talking about intervention. Yeah, and look, I guess this comes from not only the work that I've done as a as a youth worker, but research. Uh, I suffered uh, postnatal depression, uh, so you know this isn't just my thoughts. This is from research and uh, speaking, observing other parents. So for me, I believe that the epitome of early intervention begins when a child is in utero. I believe the investment in our child mental uh, maternal health services is one of the most important. I think we have to have assurances that parents are educated so they can accommodate a newborn at home. We all know anyone who is a mother or even a father or parent, let's, let's make this non-gender specific, a parent knows how difficult it can be to have those changes for your first child in the family, it's complete disruption. You only know what you know. And most families behind closed doors battle through, particularly vulnerable families, battle through this juggling of what's right for that child. I also feel that we have to support fathers because they are deeply impacted by the many changes that happen within that family dynamic when a newborn arrives. And I think that that's an area that is often overlooked. I think we need to do more to ensure that children are being nurtured, supported and connected with their family home. I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy and a bit like a fairy tale, but we must, we absolutely must ensure that vulnerable families have the capacity to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. Like that that sounds um, so basic. Simplistic. To somebody like myself, yes, to somebody like myself who, you know, I grew up like I learnt about, oh, I don't know, um, or where to, um, you know, your knife and fork and to not eat with your mouth full and all these little things as kids, it's basic stuff to me but it's it's not basic to a lot of people, is it? And I, I find it amazing that we actually have to teach. It's the adults that have these children. We have to, it's education, isn't it? It's education of these little kids to grow up and understand what, it is to respect people, to respect themselves <laughs> before anybody else. Absolutely. And, and you know, we're looking at intergenerational change, Narelle. This doesn't happen uh, by a maternal health nurse going into a family and supporting that one family. We have to look at how was that parent parented? Because yes, that is what is ingrained in in that parent and we have to change for some families the fundamental knowledge and skills that they have or that they lack. So it is basic, it is simplistic but I think people would be very surprised to learn and to understand there are so many families out there who don't have that support 
who don't have that mm. financial capacity, who don't have links to community, who are isolated, and that can lead to all sorts of issues as those children grow and are raised. And let's face it, these children and families deserve nothing less than being educated and supported. Mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting comment you, you made a while ago uh, about, or to me in one of our conversations about the fact that we've got to turn things around we need to stop the offending so that we don't have the victims. Mm-hmm. And to stop the offending, it's going back to what you're saying. It's about from very early learning what is right and what is wrong. Uh, we've got to start, we've got to do something different because it is not working. To me, the offending is getting worse, and we'll get onto that. I believe a lot of that's to do with pornography on the internet. But um, I, I just liked that that turning our um, our mindset around to stop the offending. Yeah. Because then we won't have victims. I mean, that's unrealistic. Of course, we're always going to have victims, but the less victims we have, the better. Can you imagine? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. General, the reduced need for funding for youth offending if there were significant increases in maternal child health resources that were available to all. You know, we're, we're talking about ensuring that your baby has those checks along the way mm. to ensure that their growth, to ensure that their nutrition, to ensure that their hygiene is at a level that it should be. 
I look at, in particular, our regional and rural areas where the access to support can be difficult to obtain, but with more funding and accessibility to those resources, there is so much more that could be accomplished. And I know that these services are under the pump and what they do now is absolutely incredible, but I believe this is a pivotal point to ensure families are well supported and it must be in a timely manner. When they need that support, they need it then. Why is it, I wonder, that maternal and child health care and, let's say, kinder, uh, preschool, I wonder why it is seen as almost um, um, an offshoot. Like, it's not uh, viewed as important as it should be, is it? it? It's almost like second rate to, I don't know, let's say uh, programs for, I don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous, gambling, Gamblers Anonymous. Like, why is it that maternal and child health care, anything to do with children, doesn't, it just doesn't get the, Oh, what is it, Tanya? Help me out here. Yeah, look, um, it, it doesn't get the exposure that it should. And I think that that comes yeah. to us being so uh, reactive as, a spo- as opposed to responsive. So when people are screaming out that they need support for drug addiction, gambling, you know, th- mm. things that are high profile in the media, let's mm. face it, the media plays a big role in this, then money is invested because ultimately the government who are funding these programs don't want to be seen as doing nothing. So if we're not screaming out about early intervention and primary prevention, then the funding, the investment, the resources aren't going to where they should be. We have to look at how can we work better as a proactive society as opposed to reactive. And and we spend enormous amounts of money on keeping victims safe. And, and rightly so. Please, I am, I'm not mm. saying we shouldn't, yep. but I am such yep. a strong believer that we should be investing in the prevention of crimes. We're sort of moving into another space now, but it's outrageous that governments are not investing sufficiently in prevention to address offending and holding people accountable. Our youth offending is out of control at the moment. And I don't mm, agree with lowering the age of criminal responsibility because we've got nothing yeah. in place to mitigate that. Yeah. You know, yeah. there, there can be ways to prevent these young people offending, ut- utilising alternative interventions much earlier. And if we do that, we may not require a change to that particular legislation. And wouldn't that be fabulous? Mm. Wouldn't it? Um, in your role as an MP uh, representing a party which concentrates wholly on justice. You've no doubt heard, I cannot imagine the troubling stories that you've heard. Are there a couple uh, which have you've had difficulty dealing with um, at the time or afterwards that or maybe you've felt helpless in um, assisting them? Yes, absolutely. And look, I think my emotion just talking about Daniel is is sort of proof of that. That's something that whilst I wasn't physically involved in, it's something that still impacts me 
just to reflect, I guess, on my time in Parliament and, and working with those victims of crimes, their stories have always been difficult to hear, especially when the judicial system has let them down. Uh, fighting to have a desired outcome takes its toll on families. And for some, it's not just about losing a loved one. It's having to learn how the system works with little to no access to resources. And, you know, people having to endure that and navigate that alone, it's completely daunting and overwhelming for them. But it was something that emotionally always impacted me. There's many crimes that have been committed that I find difficult to, to comprehend and, they, and, and like I said, they do impact me emotionally. I think when children are murdered, that's the most horrific. And watching families go through unbearable trauma is, is mm. just horrendous. But I ensure that I take care of myself because I'm no good to anybody else if I don't spend a certain amount of time ensuring that I'm okay. Mm. And I believe that those emotions that are raised with within me, Narelle. That's what keeps me passionate. You know, we touched on that earlier about Daniel Morecambe. It, it gives me that drive to fight and advocate for necessary change at a legislative and policy level where possible. This is where lessons learned are so important for me to continue my work. So I reflect on the victim's experience, the horror that they've experienced, and I learn to become stronger and more passionate. And for me, that works. So apart from, and I, I hear Daniel has had a huge impact on you, but are there a couple uh, that you've had to personally deal with and personally become involved in that um, have never left you? I mean, I'm sure that they're like myself, there's, they never leave you, but there's some that have a huge impact or an impact where you just will never forget the the grief or the trauma that you've experienced or you've helped them through. Are, are, are there some yep. um, that you feel comfortable enough talking about? If not, we can move on. No, I'm more than happy to. And as I mentioned earlier, that beautiful little girl in Wangaratta, Zoe Buttergig, um, that was incredibly difficult. And just to touch on Whenever I met with Janelle, the mum of Zoe, I, I always managed to keep this very straight face and I kept her at a distance. That was my survival tool. I could not let my guard down because I knew for me to assist her, I couldn't be blanketed by the overwhelming emotion. And, you know, it wasn't until a great deal of time had passed that I actually went to Janelle and felt compelled to explain that to her because yep. I felt I was coming across to her as very cold. Mm. And it was at that time that she showed me her daughter's bedroom and it, it, that just broke me. Yeah, I can. I can hear that. <laughs> it, it really. I can, yeah. yeah, I completely understand it. Yeah. And mm. another particular case was uh, Janelle Dean Hayes, who had lost her son in a hit and run accident, uh, and her son Tyler was killed. And only a matter of weeks later, 
she had pulled up at some traffic lights and the offender who had killed her son was driving a car sitting beside her. That, and Janelle was not in my electorate. That was uh, something that I just felt so passionate that that had to change and uh, that really stayed with me and I had a picture of Tyler up on my wall mm. in my office in Parliament and we went as far, went as far as we had some legislation come up in Parliament. Uh, it was under the um, road safety. It was in uh, 2019 and Tyler was killed in 2017. Uh, we supported the bill and thought this is going to be fantastic. We were still sitting debating the bill at 2 o'clock in the morning. Janelle and her husband, Josh, were sitting in the chamber. It passed and we were elated, absolutely elated that finally justice had been served. Whilst nothing would bring Tyler back, this was something that was an incredible piece of legislation until I had a phone call from a senior member of the Major Collision Investigation Unit who had worked on the case and he said to me, Tanya, that legislation is not going to achieve the outcomes that the family intended. So he and I went back and forth for months. I had to take it to the police minister. Her chief of staff came back to me and said, no, Tanya, it absolutely is. This high-ranking collision investigation unit manager was told to basically pull his head in and keep out of this. Gee. This is where we go back to my sheer determination. Uh, mm. I pushed and I pushed and I said I brought forward the reasons. I had legal advice and in 2022 that, le that legislation came back to Parliament. See, that makes me just so proud, this family. Yeah. And we amended it. Oh, gee. We amended it, which uh, crossbenchers yeah. very, very rarely get to change legislation. Yeah. And we did it. Boy, Tanya, I think, <laughs> oh, God, you got me going here. Um, but I, I do think to myself, if we didn't have people like you, nothing would you know, these sort of things would just go through and and not be um, legislated. That like they wouldn't be recognised. Like they just, uh, I don't know, um, what's that word? Go into oblivion. Yeah. Like yeah, I'm like a dog with a I, bone. I, <laughs> you know, I was just going to ask you, in your position within Parliament, what's your proudest achievement? But That'd be pretty hard to beat, wouldn't it? Look, like what what a an achievement that is. I mean that it's amazing. Yeah. Look, and and there there are a couple more. If if you'd like me to, please sort please of feel free. Yes. I'd love you to. <laughs> um, yeah. I th I think some of the other ones were we had another incident, uh, which was in relation to the Victims of Crime Act. So the government brought in that uh, a tribunal 
uh, giving notice of the time and place for a hearing, uh, were not allowed to give that to the person who committed the crime. So the alleged offender would not be allowed to have that information, uh, particularly when they had committed an act of family violence or certain sexual offences. So when that came to Parliament, whilst I believed that this was a great achievement for victims, I also recognised that it didn't go far enough. So I proposed an amendment to extend this to offences of stalking, threats to kill and threats to inflict serious injury. The amendments were passed, so once again that was my second opportunity to contribute and change legislation. So very, very proud moments and what that then led to was the tabling of a petition following the devastating death of Celeste Mano uh, and we had a VLRC inquiry, which is the Victorian law reform. Now, those two inquiries were from my work with Di McDonald, who I know you are familiar with, who you have mm. uh, completed podcasts with, and mm-hmm. uh, um, Celeste Mano's Mum. So that was great. While we haven't changed legislation, that was still, if you like, the early intervention to have mm. this uh, these recommendations from this um, report is is another great achievement. Um, I initiated uh, a review of Victoria's criminal justice system that had not been done for thirty years. That forwarded victims the opportunity to come forward and place submissions of how it gave them the voice that they needed to be able to go and sit in front of a panel in an inquiry and talk about how the justice system prioritised the rights of offenders over victims. So while some of the outcomes weren't conducive to the intention we still managed to achieve some great results for victims of crime. What prompted you to do that, Tanya? Was there something, uh, a case that... uh... I think working with a lot of the victims that I saw, uh, Mm. realising that, you know, one of them was working with a woman who had the offender was a police officer. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty that she had in gaining a conviction, Mm. she was a victim of family violence from her husband Mm. Uh, and unfortunately she had to be removed to a safe house and a police officer gave out her new personal details. You know, there were so many stories like this where I saw the injustice. I saw great injustices in people who were not convicted of murder uh, through trial of um, mental impairment. 
you know, and looking at Thomas Embling and the cases that were going in there and working with victims who the offender was in Thomas Embling and then they were allowed out on day release and offended again. And these families were terrified. There were so many injustices there, in particular that they were not allowed to be informed that that offender was being released for day release. Um, yeah, just so many injustices. I saw an injustice uh, around the flourishing trade that funnels profits through to child exploitation and organised crime from uh, Victoria's illicit tobacco, something completely different, but it was something nobody else was touching. And when I raised it with the government, they, the state government initially said, oh, this is a federal government's responsibility. However, from digging deeper, I knew that the sole responsibility for uh, investigation into these shops was solely and predominantly the responsibility of the health department within local government. So I went back and said, how can you say this is the sole responsibility of the federal government? And everybody treated it like a hot potato. Nobody wanted to touch it. So I secured a review of Victoria's response to illicit tobacco and its links to organised crime. And I worked for months with um, the Commissioner for Better Regulation. We provided the report to the government. I've since had the media keep raising this and to ask the government, where is the the response to the recommendations in that review? So... Another one that I'm very proud of is we shone a light on the gaps in evidence relating to family violence and coercive control. Now, if we take our minds back to Hannah Clark, who lived in Queensland, uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar, and, and this is really raw, I'll put a warning out there, Hannah and her children were burnt alive in the car uh, satellite by her estranged husband. I learnt a lot about coercive control from that story. I've become very good friends with Hannah's parents, uh, Sue and Lloyd Clark, and uh, that was how I became involved in working with our state government around coercive control laws. I was also working with another victim, Lee Little, whose daughter was murdered by her partner. He, uh, in his vehicle, pushed her up around a concrete tank and what what absolutely was insidious about this was he lost his driver's license for longer than he was incarcerated. And you can hear. Words fail me. You can hear in my voice the disdain and the unbelievable ignorance, if you like, of how a justice system can afford that sentence and to add insult to injury was that once he served his very minimal sentence, which was four years, which ended up being plea bargained down to, I think, 18 months. Now, he was released in COVID and whilst we were all locked down, he was allowed to be taken to Queensland where he manipulated his way to be able to live in the same street as the brother of the girl who was murdered. 
You know, these things you just can't make this stuff that up. That is incompetent. That is that is incompetence. Uh, that there are so many words that you just can't describe the. Well, I, I can't. I, I don't know what to say to that. It's incompetence and. Once again, my mantra has always been, I am sick of seeing offenders' rights being prioritised over victims. And the government would say, but we've done this, we're doing this, we're doing that. That doesn't bring these people back. Something else that is more recent since I've left Parliament was initiating and working with the family of Joy Rowley uh, and the end result of that was legislating non-fatal strangulation. And I would never have recognised that as an achievement, only they were the words of the family in the most beautiful email that came back to me saying, Without our support and our advocacy and our dogged-like approach to this in continuing to ask the government, this was raised X amount of years ago. Why haven't we seen this come to fruition? Um, You know, whilst it will never bring their mum back, their advocacy has not gone in vain. Could you tell us... um Again, if if you can or if you sure. feel comfortable enough, can you tell us about uh, what was the lady's name, Rowley, her first name? Joy Rowley. Can you tell us a bit about Joy Rowley? Yeah, look, she was a mum who um, had been in a, in a relationship. Uh, the, the person was a family violence um, offender. He was... Not, I think it took many years for it to actually be known and realised. I don't think Joy was vocal at the time, as many victims aren't, about what had actually happened with her. Um, But, yes, she was murdered and a part of that uh, was the use of, I believe, strangulation but we also know that in family violence, and I'll just quickly go back to Hannah Clark, a dominant feature in that was coercive control and the ability to use that non-fatal strangulation. So whilst it doesn't end somebody's life, it plays a factor in that violent behaviour. And I think initially some of when I spoke to the Attorney General some of the concerns were that we know that strangulation can be used in sexual encounters Mm. so there was complexities there but what we learned to understand was the majority of this legislation had already been drafted by the previous Attorney General um so yeah, that was and and working with the family was was tragic, and they got to a point where they were finding it so difficult to talk about it, to continuously have to discuss it, 
And that's something else that as an advocate and as a member of parliament, you have to be fully aware and understanding of what their capacity is and knowing Mm. when to reach out to them and when not to. So I'm just very thankful that that has finally come to fruition. Can we can we go back a little bit about the strangulation? Sure. I interviewed a lady in Queensland. I think it was Betty Taylor. She's a, a very, very strong victim advocate like yourself. And Betty, I'm sure it's Betty, uh, told me that because strangulation is becoming such, um, oh, unfortunately, almost oh, common is the wrong word, Let's use the word common, but because um, strangulation is becoming such an issue within uh, intimate partners and the fact that um, it's used as a coercive, a a controlling behaviour, they've found in Queensland that it's such a problem that they have an actual strangulation hospital because there's a certain way you have to treat somebody that's been um, attempted to be strangled. Um, but also Betty was of the opinion, and I have, have to agree with her, that this has probably come about like many other um, sexual uh, practices in with pornography on the internet and violence on the internet and that some people start to think, uh, some offenders start to think that this is, oh, acceptable is the wrong word, but that... It becomes normalised. Normalised, that's the word. Um, That's that's a huge problem. I mean, pornography on the internet is a huge problem, particularly with young people watching it and thinking that's normal. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I'm glad that you raised that point, Narelle, because absolutely I do. I know in my days as a youth worker, I uh, brought Melinda Tankard Reese to some of the schools to talk about this very thing. She runs an organisation called Collective Shout, uh, and she has great experience in the impact and outcomes that we see from young people gaining access to pornography. And as you touched on, for some, it it normalises that behaviour. And if you don't have parents or strong mentors who can explain that this is unrealistic and this is not how intimacy should be conveyed in a relationship, then how do these children gain knowledge that this is is not acceptable. And I'll go back, if I may, just to a case with another victim that I worked with. Um, It was in the local area and a young girl went to a party. It was her first time going to a party. She uh, She hadn't been drinking and she was raped out the back in a shed. She was sodomized. Two boys sexually abusing her at the same time. And when this finally came to court, this poor victim was absolutely gruelled about her intentions, 
her responses, even down to the blouse she was wearing. Now, I was so distraught by that and and we 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 hear it in the media when other court cases uh, become highlighted but I met this young woman I spoke to her as well as hearing it on the media now first and foremost for me was even if this young woman had said yes to these boys How can they for one moment think that that is appropriate behaviour? What are we not teaching these young boys and men? And this is where I think, oh, you can hear my voice just heightened. This is where I think pornography plays a big role in normalising this behaviour. How could those boys have not stood back and said, this isn't right, this isn't the time or the place to be having sex with you. This is what we have to teach our young boys and men. Yeah, I agree with you, Tanya. It's, uh, and again, it's about changing our mindset. It's not, of course, it's about the victim, but why are these young men not thinking we shouldn't really, not we shouldn't really, we should not be doing this. This woman is intoxicated. She's not capable of consenting. This is wrong. We shouldn't be taking advantage of her. We should be actually, I don't know, taking her home or looking after her rather than why would they think it's an invitation to have sex with her? I just, I couldn't agree more with you. It just staggers me that these I'm sorry, but it's generally men, Mm -hmm. just think it's an open invitation to have sex. Well, not have, it's not even sex, it's rape. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, absolutely. Let's call it 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 out what it is. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, we've we've gone into some pretty heavy stuff today, but uh, this was the whole point of of a lot of this conversation, Narelle, is we have to expose this. So many people in our communities have no idea that this happens you know and we and and we haven't even highlighted the impact of incest yet which goes on behind closed doors that people have no idea about that people just cannot believe oh he's a good bloke he'd never do that or she's a loving mum she would never abuse her children well that's part 1 of my two-part interview with Tanya. Isn't she just so articulate and passionate about everything justice? A woman after my own heart. Next week, Tanya talks about her reluctance to report her own sexual abuse that she survived as a young child and her reasons behind that reluctance. We also discuss the options available to someone considering reporting uh, a crime to the police. And she's also got some sound advice for anyone unfortunate enough to be sexually assaulted. But anyway, have a great week and uh, we'll talk next week. All right. Thank you. As you've probably noticed, 
we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.